Are you ready, Alvin? Alvin? Alvin! Okay. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace Podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily represent the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. And watch out for chipmunks on the runway! So Jeb, I'm still, I'm still kind of like, uh, I don't know, jonesing about, stressing about, the, uh, bemoaning the fact that we didn't get down there. Um, a couple well, of I, ago. I am too, and and I was really looking forward to hosting you guys and and uh, you know bending an elbow or two and, and that kind of thing. But uh, it's okay. <laughs> Not I mean, only you know, know, we didn't get a chance to to visit your new home. We didn't get a chance yeah. to attack that mountain of Leinenkugel that you uh, you apparently have. Uh, laid in there and yeah, yeah. and we it's, didn't get a chance you know, to get over to the sebring fly-in and that's what i wanted to ask you about you didn't get over to the sebring fly-in so you um, didn't get over or to the grounds right you didn't go i, I got over there um the day before it, it opened um so i i watched some of the setup and uh um paul burrelli and i went over there to shoot some video mm-hmm. and uh um met some of the event staff um walked around the grounds a good bit um and, and, you know, saw some of the, the aircraft uh, uh, being set up, uh, a lot of the tents being set up. Um, my overall impression, and, and I just couldn't make it um, to the event because uh, uh, after taking that day, um, I, my schedule just got kaflui. But... Um, so what did you get a chance to see anything? I mean, what, what? Yeah, well, yeah. We, I mean, the, the aircraft on display, of course, were getting set up, and there's some very interesting uh, uh, examples of of where the LSA market is and where it's going. The uh, display booths were, were were being set up at the time, also, and I was quite frankly surprised at the uh, size and, and the scope of of the displays. Now, this is clearly not Oshkosh. It's clearly not Sun and Fun. Um, but it's much larger than I thought it was going to be. There's market depth and participation from a lot of the usual suspects, um, but with an emphasis on the LSA market, of course. Uh, and there are um, the, the LSA uh, vendors, for lack of a better term, those who are heavily participating in the LSA market, uh, had much more visible, had a much more visible presence. Um, than I would have uh, um, noticed at Sun and Fun or Oshkosh. So it was interesting to to see who, you know, get a better feel for uh, what I would consider who the major players are uh, at this event. Um, Everybody was optimistic. Everybody, you know, was was professional. Everybody was... They set uh, an an attendance record. Yeah. Yeah. And in in this economy, that's that's no mean feat. Yeah. it was cold uh, that day, yeah. uh, but it was it was guaranteed to warm up, and uh, I, I'm I'm just sad. I, sorry, I didn't make it for uh, uh, the days the show was open, um, but I'll uh, I'll definitely. And, and a lot of people have said, uh, a lot of people who did attend uh, have said that uh, that show has now become a, a must attend, and I agree with them. 
um, if, if you're um, certainly if you're in the area, but uh, more importantly, if you um, um, have an, any interest at all in uh, the state of the LSA market, um, definitely put that show on your calendar for next year. Sounds like fun. Yeah, well, it was on my calendar for this year, but alas, yeah. next time, next time. Well, we, well, yeah, we, exactly. we, we, have, we have to alas. next time just say, but, okay, uh, guys, we're not taking other stuff on. Yeah, so anyways, well, that's cool. Well, I want to hear more about that, but uh, let's see. You know, let's move along here. So, uh, welcome, folks. Yeah, okay, that's what I'm going to say now. Welcome, folks. Yeah, episode, that's the ticket. Uh, 120 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation Podcast. And didn't feel a day over 100. I know. Those, you know I was the number keeps say. getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We're recording this episode on uh, Thursday evening, February 5th, 2009. And let me say hi to my friends here in the virtual hangar. One of those voices you're hearing is Dave Higdon, uh, who's joining us from Wichita, Kansas. Uh, how you doing, David? I'm doing good. I'm uh, healthy, upright, ambulatory, wasn't in the obits this morning, and I'm employed. So, uh, all, all of these things are good things, yeah. Those are good things, uh-huh. yes. So what's going on in your world? Anything fun? Well, we're continuing to see a trickle out of uh, not the best news in the aviation business. Uh, today's uh, low-level news be, uh, was, yeah. Wich- was, was Wichita's uh, Learjet announcing that they, too, are finally joining the ranks of airplane companies cutting employees uh, to the tune of about 120 permanent staff and 220 contractors and revising down production. So, uh, you know, the uh, economic flu continues to move through the town. Yeah, this is the downside of being the aviation capital of the world. Are these um, management types, these uh, rivet buckers, what kind of class they of didn't really define about? they didn't really define uh, from where, but if past indications uh, bear true this time, it's going to be you know a, a few from here, a few from there. Uh, there'll be some white collars go. There'll be a fair number of blue collars go uh, because they did say that they were revising downward their uh, production plans for this year. So that always hits a little disproportionate. And that other voice out there is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. How's the circus business? I don't know. Circus <laughs> business, um, it, it, they're, they're freezing um, their parakeets off tonight. Um, it's cold. It's cold. It's yeah. it's cucking full down here. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's what like sixty five um, degrees, we're, right? We're, no, no, we're, we're expecting really? yeah. um, at least at least freezing tonight, if not in the twenties. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Wow, and we year. we were into sixties here today. Yeah, well, I'm I'm looking forward to some of that. So, um, it's it's been kind of chilly uh, all week. I uh, I have I've had to abandon the motorcycle for my commute, and, and uh, I'm, I'm driving the four wheeler for a change here. Oh, Gee, many winter oh. is winter is such a stitch in Sarasota. but easy for me to say. <laughs> and I am Jack Hodgson. Uh, I'm talking to you from Dover, New Hampshire, where it got down to be got down to two minus two last night here in in Dover, New Hampshire. How and cool uh, is that? Got all well, the way that's up pretty to, damn cool. Got all the way up to like 18 today, but uh, it's supposed to get to. 45 wow. over the weekend. We're looking forward to that. So, yeah, absolutely. Almost like spring. So let's see. Um, what's going on in the aviation world here? Uh, that's right. Um, so we're recording this on the 5th. Uh, two days ago, the 3rd, was a notable uh, uh, anniversary. The uh, Yeah, sad, sad 50th anniversary. 50th anniversary uh, of the, uh, the day the music died, the infamous fl- plane crash that uh, 
killed three legendary uh, rock and roll musicians, as well as the pilot of the aircraft. And uh, and I, I put this on there not so much for the morbid curiosity or the the, the calendar timing, although that makes it convenient. But I put this on the uh, on the uh, calendar, and I appreciate you keeping it there because uh, this is a classic story, a classic situation where somebody kind of had get their itis and saw with their own eyes, if they weren't blind, that the conditions were deteriorating beyond what the terminal reports were giving them. And took off from uh, uh, well Mason City, Iowa, about one o'clock in the morning on February third of nineteen fifty nine. And now, for anybody out there listening who's ever flown over Iowa or parts of Nebraska or Kansas at night, uh, even on a VFR day, it can be a uh, a horizonless black hole. Mm-hmm. With no distinction whatsoever, a moonless night. There's no 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 reference, and this was deteriorating ceilings, snow, uh, and the uh, commercial rated pilot who had apparently not yet finished his instrument rating uh, was uh, unfortunately uh, flying an airplane that had an attitude indicator that was viewed differently than the attitude indicator of the airplane in which he'd been receiving instrument training. Yeah, now I want you to try and explain this to me, but first of all, let me say that, uh, have you seen, uh, there's a really great article in the current issue of AOPA Pilot, the February 2009 issue, um, where where, uh, writer uh, Bruce Landsberg um, recaps uh, a lot of the facts of the whole thing, recapping a lot of the uh, investigations from the time, and... uh, it's a very, very interesting thing. I'd never really kind of, you know, kind of well, I've, seen I've, it I've as had a piece the, like this. I've had the link to the NTSB files, the PDF on this for years, uh-huh. and yeah. brought it up uh, a few days ago to put on the list, yeah. and was fortunate enough to actually hear Bruce uh, interviewed on national public radio. So what's the deal with this attitude indicator? Apparently, the attitude indicator read differently than the one that he was familiar with. Are you able to describe what what the difference is here? I'm not picturing it. Um, Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, no, go ahead. Well, this is a brand new uh, instrument um, at at the time. uh, And I forget the specific designation, but it was something manufactured by Sperry. And um, basically, uh, as I understand it, and I'm certainly not an engineer on these instruments, but uh, um, some instruments, the uh, the gyro uh, drives the uh, the uh, the airplane symbol. Some instruments, um, the gyro drives the horizon symbol. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And uh, whichever it was that this guy was familiar with. It, what he was flying in the Sperry instrument was the opposite. Was the other. Yeah. yeah. So the what, what he was basically doing, you know, every time he'd make a control input, the horizon, the artificial horizon would uh, respond in the opposite manner. Yeah. And that, you know, that's it's like having uh, uh, reverse, you know, let, let's say your ailerons were reversed in maintenance or something like that. Right. You don't know what's going on. Um, a couple of couple of points. One, the weather was VFR. It was a dark night. There was a there was a moderately high overcast. I think five thousand feet 
the visibility was enough that was good enough that um, the uh, flying service owner, the the guy who owned the airplane and hired the pilot, watched the airplane depart and fly, you know, a few miles away, and then watched the lights of the airplane descend until they disappeared. Yeah. Um, so the, so it, it, it was decent VFR. It was a cold, dark night, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't IFR. So that's you know one thing no, it, that we kind of definitely need to, wasn't. Yeah, um, but um, you know, just flew the airplane into the ground essentially because he didn't have uh, enough outside reference. He was not instrument rated. I believe he had, he had uh, as David correctly noted, I believe he had taken but failed his instrument test, practical test. Yeah, that's what it said. He was in the process of getting his instrument rating. And it was the first time, I believe, that he had flown that particular airplane or it was the first time he had flown that particular instrument, one of the two. Yeah. Uh, I and believe it, was uh, the first it had time to, it had to be instrument. his flight. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what, you know, what, what happened is they started out getting weather before midnight, yeah. and the conditions along the route uh, were reporting 5,000 and snow. Uh, when he took off, it was actually down to 3,000, sky obscured. Visibility was still six miles in light snow. Mm-hmm. So as Jeb, as Jeb correctly noted, it was a VFR night, uh, but it was a VFR night with, for all practical purposes, uh, instruments required because right. dark night over the plains with no horizon, uh, no outside frame of reference available. There's no moon. There's no lights on the ground. Uh, you're uh, having done this over parts of the Midwest myself, uh, VFR and IFR at night. Uh, I'll tell you, you even on a VFR night, you're spending a lot of time on the gauges because there's just nothing out there to give you a, a frame of reference. Yeah. And, and you're, uh, and you're uh, actually one, one other thing too on a, on a night like that, your workload is lower if you go yeah. on the gauges because yeah, otherwise your 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 head's bouncing back and forth. You, you can eat much more easily, induce vertigo, and. Uh, uh, it's just an easier, more comfortable way to operate the airplane in those conditions. Yeah, that's we, right. We need to move along here, but I, I you know, yeah. I, I recommend people to the AOPA pilot article, and we'll put a link in the show notes to the uh, reports that Dave was alluding to a minute ago. Um, you know, in addition to things we've talked about, the other thing that that just struck me from reading this account uh, in AOPA pilot is is I would sort of characterize as the more things change, the more they stay the same. This could have been an accident report from last week. Um, it's Absolutely. Just the, the, the same kinds of problems that you see now, you were seeing back then. Um, ironically, it's the kind of airplane you see right now. Uh, it's know. true. Um, it, and, and, and lest anybody not catch on to who we were talking about, uh, this was the airplane crash that took the life of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and, and the Big Bopper. Yeah. Yeah. As well as the pilot. As well as the pilot. As well as the pilot, right. As well as the pilot. Um, sad situation, but hopefully we can all learn a little bit something, a little something from it. Well, there's, there's always Sometimes something Sometimes it's just worth If they'd waited until the next morning, it would have been CAVU all the way up to their destination. Yeah, and apparently they didn't even need, I mean, you know, you never need to be there, but it's like they weren't even scheduled to be at their destination until the following afternoon. They would have made it just That's fine. Right. Anyways. That's right. Lessons to be learned. Um, 
So just, I believe it was this afternoon, very, very recently, they released some of the ATC tapes from the uh, U.S. Airways uh, Hudson just River today, yeah. ditching uh, incident. Um, pretty in- interesting. Not very long, uh, not a lot there, but, but nevertheless pretty interesting. Um, and the thing that really struck me, maybe struck you too, is is man, that guy was cool. I mean, he was uh, the pilot. Uh, uh, Sully was just uh, uh, he was cool. He was a rock um, through that whole thing. You only heard him for about six transmissions, but um, there was never a sense of you know he was like he was focused, you know, and he was speaking clearly, and he was you know asking a, a couple of quick questions and and giving instructions and you know giving responses and just just he was a rock uh the uh, the controller was pretty good too although you could kind of i kind of got a feeling that he was starting to kind of like go what the heck is going on here you know i don't know yeah. what we're going to do here i don't i can't figure out what the solution is you know he was good i don't mean to criticize him at all cuz he did his job too but you could yeah. get a little bit of a sense of the of the stress level there from his voice but Sully's well, voice was just uh, wow one of my one of my local one of my local friends here in the Wichita area and one of my best uh, long-time friends going close to 30 years uh, back in the D.C. area is a former controller. Uh, so I got one current one former, and both of them have been on position when they had uh, uh, crises arise with aircraft they were handling. And, you know, the, uh, in some instances, the uh, one of them told me once, says, uh, you, you're fighting so hard to keep that cool, calm, professional mm-hmm. voice because you know that if you sound as panicked as you feel for those people that you can't do anything more for than talk to, yeah. you're just going to contribute to to their stress level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one told me once that absolutely the most frustrating experience in the world for him, and both of these guys are active pilots, was sitting through a crisis of a uh, passenger suddenly thrust into the command position of an aircraft because of a a debilitating illness on the part of the pilot Mm -hmm. and wanting to be able to impart to them all these really simple things that that you learn as a student pilot and knowing it it, it just wasn't possible in the circumstances because the person had never flown an airplane, never had a lesson. They just happened to be in the right seat at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And he he said, it's unbelievably frustrating and 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 heartrending when you're in control you know, you're the controller on the position you are an aviator with enough skill to be able to talk them into the right maneuvers if only they can execute but you don't have the luxury of a CFI of taking the airplane and saying here's what you need to do so I think we can add to the list of people who just really did their job really well that day the controllers uh, absolutely um, uh, continues to be a remarkable story uh, uh, go to Avweb or we'll put a link on our I think Avweb has a link to the I think you guys made yeah. a video out of this whole thing probably oh, it was a podcast the uh, the the uh, audio files that the FAA released today are fairly lengthy and what Avweb did was was cut them down to size okay. the of course the the whole evolution of flight 1549 um, was you know from the time it was cleared to take off to the time it splashed down was maybe 5 minutes so yeah. it, it makes for a, a fairly uh, um, uh, a moderate 
you know, moderate download and easy, easy to listen to podcast uh, without cutting anything out. Yeah. So check your favorite aviation website or go to our show notes and find a link to that and uh, and give it a listen. You know, and it's one one of those one of those instances, real quick and dirty, where you know you can have good luck even when you're having bad luck. Because mm-hmm. yeah, good luck right. in the case of these guys was that they were as high as they were when they encountered the birds, because a thousand fifteen hundred feet lower, they would have never made it to safe waters. Yeah, yeah, that's the truth. So, okay. Well, joining us now in the uh, virtual hangar is an old friend of the podcast and an old friend of ours. Uh, Dan Johnson is with us. He's uh, Dan uh, has been been with us in the po- on the podcast a couple of different times. Uh, uh, longtime listeners will recall that uh, Dan is an aviation journalist who focuses on the light sport aircraft field, and he's also the chairman of the Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association. He's joining us tonight from his home in Daytona Beach, Florida. Hi, Dan. How you doing? I'm doing very well, although it's kind of chilly down here, and that would be unusual for a Floridian <laughs> to gripe about that. That's what yeah, we heard. We heard that from that. the other side of the state too. Yeah, Jeb was moaning <laughs> a little bit about that as well. How cold is it where you are? Oh, it's uh, in the 40s and dipping down tonight. In, that was the daytime and dipping down tonight into the uh, high 20s or maybe lower. Oh man, that's what it's doing here. They're going to be like people are going to go nuts. People are going to lose their minds. I, uh, you guys can't handle that. I don't think. I'm Can going out know? in the morning and stock up on orange juice. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's uh, yeah, orange juice and lemon juice and grapefruit. Juice. I know, really, because uh, yeah, really, really going to sell, buy some some uh, some. Uh, I only buy grapefruits to throw at people. Anyways. Hey, last so, so we were just kind of thinking about this. The last time you visited us here in the virtual hangar was pro- probably almost a year ago um, at uh, Sun and Fun last spring, and uh, there have been some changes in your life since since then. Back then, you were still living a life that I admire greatly, which was uh, you were wandering around America in a in a motorhome, and uh, and and that that must have been a cool lifestyle. But I believe you've now settled down a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah, we uh, we enjoyed the heck out of that and would do it again, but we couldn't. Uh, we didn't have the pocketbook to have that and something else we wanted, and that was a home in Florida. Uh-huh. We live uh-huh. in Minnesota in the summer months now, and I uh, love it there. Have a lot of good friends there and all that, and a lot of aviation contacts and the rest. But uh, those winters, I did twenty winters of them. I was a good soldier, and you know what? I've had enough. <laughs> so, so we found an ideal spot down here in Spruce Creek, flying, which is like one of the coolest places that we probably could have ever picked kind of happened across it didn't really weren't looking for this you know how those things sometimes work and uh, ended up with a a home on an airport and golf course the airport has 650 airplanes based here that's more than any airport i know actually wow yeah and there's some cool stuff from some light sport and even ultralight uh to all manner of everything in between and up into including l39 jets and biz jets and p51s and you name it and they all like to go out flying and it's a really cool place to live and the winters are mighty nice well apparently all the cool people are doing it because as you probably know jeb just recently moved on to an airport community and uh um, so he's been telling us all kinds of great stories about living the lifestyle. Um, it's, this- it's, been, it's been a passion. Don't for have a long near time. the, yeah. Don't have near the uh, the variety and and scope that uh, you folks have over at uh, Spruce Creek, but uh, uh, we make up for it in quality. <laughs> hey, yeah. Gates, well, do know, they still have that great pizza place there near the FBO? Uh, there is the Downwind Cafe, right? A golf, a short golf cart ride away. That's how you get around out here. If you're cool, we aren't quite cool yet, but we're going to be cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, 
And so that's pretty neat. And I don't know about a pizza. Yes, there is a pizza place, but I haven't tried it. Is it good, Dave? Uh, last time I was there, uh, I was doing an advertising shoot for a, a, a airplane company that's based down in farther south in Florida, and we spent a day at uh, Spruce Creek shooting airplanes with models and airplanes with a golf course in the background and airplanes. We did two air-to-air missions out of there, and uh, uh, we had lunch at this uh, little pizza place. I'm sorry I don't remember the name of it, but yeah, it was pretty pretty bloody good, and and we could get a beer there. Cool. So how long have you been there now, Dan? Hmm. Oh, uh, we got down here. We bought the home in June. So that was uh, sort of what started off a uh, very interesting close to the year, not the least of which is the economic turmoil for a backdrop for all of us. Yeah. Right. Um, but uh, we bought the home in June and uh, signed the papers, took one more look at it, and drove back to Minnesota. <laughs> Oh, so, what I'm getting at here is, uh, is I'm, I'm assuming this is the first time you've lived on this kind of a community? Yes, it is. And, uh, and, and so we like? got back down here again on December 1st, and except for uh, Christmas holidays uh, with family elsewhere and uh, Sebring, which just happened, uh, we've been in the house since then and uh, started out in an empty house, and we're slowly but surely uh, populating it, you might say. So is it what you expected? What is, what's it like? Ah, it's terrific. It's better than what I thought it would be, actually, and I'm really delighted. Of course, we bought at a real down cycle, so we got an advantage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, many people's plight was, uh, a, you know, a benefit to us. Kind of hate to say that, I guess, but I'm glad to get a good deal when it's offered, and we did help out the seller, of course, so I'm not apologizing, but uh, we really kind of, as I said, we kind of backed into it. We didn't really intend to look at Spruce Creek initially, but because, frankly, this is a high-rent district. Mm-hmm. There's an old uh, uh, real estate rule that says you buy the cheapest house on the most expensive street. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that's kind of what we did. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't have one of those big, beautiful hangar homes, and we're not right on the runway. But there's hangar space and tie-down space available, and lots of people I can make friends with. And I'll bet you I could get an airplane or two one now and again. So. Um, I think it's going to be just ideal. We love walking around the grounds. It's a gated and secure community. You're really safe when we leave. It, we, we feel like nothing's going to happen. Uh, and uh, just, But just a delightful place. I mean, I wake up to airplane noise almost every day. I love, it. I love that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, yeah. if it's an RV or a Velocity or a P-51 or a regular uh, Spam can, who knows? I enjoy it all. And uh, golfing's uh, make for makes for me. I'm not a big golfer, but I enjoy walking the paths, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which we're allowed to do. And uh, we're just enjoying the heck out of it. Plus, we have good friends in the neighborhood, and I just discovered an old hang gliding buddy lives nearby. So, ah, very cool, very cool. So, and it's uh, a beautiful place too. It's just really well set up. Yeah. What uh, now? Before we get into into business, with uh, making little air finger quotes here, uh, what are you flying these days? Well, let's see. The very last thing I flew um, was uh, the, one of the one of the last airplanes I flew. Anyway, it was a, the Paradise P1, which has caught my attention again at Sebring because they have now become the second LSA to offer hand controls, um, mm. and indeed have sold a first aircraft, I believe, to anyone. Uh, probably a news item here, but. I don't think it's been exploited quite that way, uh, that a, an individual who learned how to fly in a light sport who is uh, uh, unable for some reason to use the rudder pedals 
Um, so that's what you mean by hand controls. It's uh, yes, right. Someone confined to a wheelchair, but with hand control uh-huh, capability. Uh-huh. Uh, can uh, they, they've adapted this airplane very nice. I mean, it's just a very simple set of controls. Uh, your hand does uh, both the throttle and the rudders, mm-hmm. and uh, just by twisting motion, works. It's very successful. Works the same way in the Sky Arrow, and the first one of those just flew. This is a Brazilian design. Um, and uh, the third of the uh, LSA entries to come from Brazil, a country that's very active in aviation, and we're just finally seeing a little bit of it in this sector. But a very nice, very conventional flying, sort of a 150 kind of airplane, but with much nicer performance and greater load and a big cabin and lots of good things to be said about it. Uh, in the typical price range of these things these days, at about 120 or so, pretty nicely equipped. Uh, but that'll get you around at 110 or 115 knots, and nice little airplane. Mm. Um, that was one of the cool ones that made a showing at uh, uh, Sebring, but there's there's a litany of them if we want to go through them. Well, I was just kind of curious uh, what kind of flying you've been doing, but we, let's go uh, yeah. let's talk. So mostly in light sports and mostly because somebody says, I'd like you to fly this airplane because you're going to write about it. Yeah, yep, yep. I'm going to be honest, <laughs> that's, that's where it usually happens. Well, let's kind of that's, dive. that's a tough gig, just a terrible gig. Yeah, I know. I hate it when that happens. Well, but, except for one problem. You're a pilot of many, no. but you're a master of none. Ah, uh, yeah. I know that feeling right now. We, I mean, we may talk about that, too. But uh, let's kind of dive into the, uh, the, to the, the, the big story here, which is, uh, um, you know, from your position uh, as, a, as part of the uh, Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association, uh, I, I would imagine you have a very particular uh, perspective. And, uh, you know, we're hearing every day stories about uh, various parts of the aviation industry that are suffering badly from uh, the current economic woes. What's going on in light sport aviation these days, uh, and, and what's the future like? Uh, both, you know, both crystal ball kind of topics, and, uh, and so obviously I'm wrong no matter what I say. The question is just how wrong I'll be, mm-hmm. and, and yet I think I can make some fairly informed guesses having said that disclaimer. Um, it would appear that light sport aircraft may be fulfilling its purpose as an entry point that is more cost effective, not only from an acquisition standpoint, the prices run fifty to 150000 and for that, at either end, you can get some pretty nice equipment. And the cost of operation at, uh, at three to five gallons per hour at, uh, for similar speeds as a 172 make for some pretty good value. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and those things, I think, re- have been compelling all along. But in, in stronger times, in 05 and 06, when people had money in you know, a Cirrus with the latest whatever they had at that time uh, or some other number of airplanes in the GA field with greater capacity and range and creature comforts and all the rest of that, you know, you could, you could talk about that stuff. People were buying expensive homes then, too, not getting foreclosed on. <laughs> Uh, in the current environment, I think LSA have really come into their own, and I think Sebring, the show which we have every year now in January, uh, which is dedicated solely to light sport aircraft and which allows demonstration flights all day long in any aircraft that a manufacturer provides, uh, which gives exceptional opportun- opportunities for someone genuinely interested in this, uh, as, as based on what we can see, it appears that Sebring's LSA Expo outdrew AOPA's Expo in San Jose, California, or Santa Cruz, California this year. Really? Wow. Excuse me, San Jose, yeah. San Jose, yeah. yeah. Uh, wow. I had heard that it did well. I didn't realize it had done that well. That's terrific. 
Well, it puts it in perspective. I mean, clearly the AOPA Expo is a big event in the aviation calendar, has been, will be, and with that organization and its, and its great size and, and great service to the community, it will always remain a, uh, a staple. But in, in just numbers of people attending, AOPA reported 9,500, and according to informed guesses, Sebring may be 11,500. Hmm. Wow. Wow. That's so it's really it's really grown from that first one five years ago. Yeah, and all of that's pretty cool for the LSA community, but there's a bigger picture, I think, and hope, and that is that here we have LSA, I hope, fulfilling its destiny as the entry point, lower cost point, which can draw people in. We need new people. We all know that. That's a that's become a litany anymore. And it may do that, but it may also keep uh, current pilots more active because the skill levels required to operate simpler equipment are a little less. The cost of operation and acquisition are less. Uh, in many ways, the challenges are less. And you're only putting two people in an airplane at a time, which, at a time, which reduces the uh, total impact of, of that kind of exposure, of carrying extra passengers and all that. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons why this could see new life here, and I think it is beginning to show that now as we have a tough time. The very fact of the economy being lousy and jet orders getting canceled and Cirrus and Cessna and Mooney and you name them all laying off people, significant numbers of people now, uh, all those things are not good, of course, and, and we certainly hope for a quick recovery for all, but... Uh, the LSA market appears to be the strong spot. Now, could it be the thing that leads us out of the doldrums? Maybe so. And if if that's true, gosh, that'll be a fun ride to be part of. So I'm really looking forward to the next couple of years. Oh, that's great. That's great. Dan, do you have any numbers that kind of distinguish between what, what we might call new starts, people new to aviation, versus people um, who are downsizing, they're getting out of the 172 and getting into an LSA? Well, no question the latter is the bulk of the market. Or the, of the 1,550 or so airplanes that are currently registered in the fleet, um, the bulk of them, I would say two-thirds of those, have gone to either – uh, pilots downsizing or some flight schools. There's probably in the neighborhood of uh, 200 to 250 of these in flight schools. I think that's a uh-huh. number that's escaped the radar a little bit too. That's a, getting to be some penetration yeah. of light sport aircraft. But other than that, uh, uh, about a third perhaps we think uh, may be going into uh, either first-time buyers possibly already in aviation or new people coming into aviation. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We have found uh, through various surveys uh, that when a, a light sport aircraft enters a fleet of GA aircraft at a training school, it tends not to cannibalize because they use the other airplanes for higher levels of training in the aviation spectra. And the light sport is used for the beginning flight. But they say that the, uh, the, the after visiting about 15 flight schools, Uh, One thing I found was that, and asking this particular question, I found that they were saying, I said, is it hurting your current business? Is the LSA just replacing the flying of your 172 or something? And they said, quote, no, it's new money. Hmm. Wow. That's great. So at a third, that's not bad. Is that great? I don't know. You know, is Light Sport the group to go out and find all these people that GA has never been able to get into the fold? I think that's unlikely. I don't think we offer any special expertise there. What we offer are the right airplanes 
and a lower cost license to help bring them in if aviation as a whole could go out and get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Let's talk about the Sebring show itself. Uh, what were the big stories? Well, let's see. Uh, Cessna revealed a new airplane uh, with, uh, not a new airplane, but a revised version after their incident, of course, during the summer months uh, when uh, what resulted was a, a larger tail on the aircraft. That was kind of interesting. Uh, and generally, though, they are moving full speed ahead despite all of Cessna's woes at uh, other levels of their business. I think they, too, still have their eye on the ball of this being a way to bring people in and to satisfy that initial interest in aviation. Mm-hmm. So they were strong there. Uh, CT revealed the, had the first installation of CTLS, their product introduced at Sebring last year, that new airplane. This year was showing the first uh, Garmin 696 installation into one of these, further proving that light sport can be very capable technology platforms just like any GA airplane because uh, uh, all glass panels are commonplace in the light sport spectra. Yeah, they really there, are. Uh, there was a very interesting... Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. All the aircraft I looked at at Sebring were all glass panel. Uh, I didn't see a single steam gauge airplane. Now, there might have been a few there, but... Uh, um, just you know, just looking inside and, and checking everything out, it's all glass. It's all uh, a digital, uh, electronic, uh, solid-state stuff, and that's something that uh, uh, sounds a lot. Yeah, it does. I mean, and, and frankly, this segment of aviation has had that stuff for a while because we don't require yeah. the certified stuff. And so, you know, a full glass panel in a light sport, we're talking uh, $10,000. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That won't. Yeah. I mean, that won't. Mm-hmm. You know, look at one Garmin mm-hmm. one thousand system, and goodness, you, you got to buy the whole airplane um, to yeah. come up with that same kind of money. Yeah. Yeah. What else? So that's kind of interesting. But that's not the only end of the aviation spectrum that's active. Uh, there was another one, a new float plane introduced called the Cape Town, based on the uh, Aeropracta Ukraine brand A twenty two Valor, now made at Sebring. Uh, they just got uh, they're, they're a certified airplane already, and they got some approval on their floats uh, from the local uh, uh, Mito office. And so they're full speed ahead now with a nice amphibious float system that I flew. The uh, uh, very last airplane I flew was that. And, uh, gee, it was nice, nice operating airplane. And like all these light aircraft, gets off the water really quick. And I know from writing some stories about seaplanes that that's the hard part for any seaplane is all the time you spend on the water, especially rougher water, just as brutal on an airplane. And so a light sport, again, has an advantage in that environment because it gets off quick. Yeah. The uh, the Valor uh, Valor on wheels uh, is actually in my future. Uh, the, uh, the FBO that I... Regular listeners know that I'm kind of a, a, I've become a, a, what's the right word? Anyways, I'm an emigre. I had to move, I had to change airports up here because the FBO I had been renting from uh, uh, closed down. And uh, so I ended up at uh, an airport up in Sanford, Maine, which is a uh, an LSA dealer, among other things. And uh, they have, one of the aircraft they have is a Valor, um, which I'm, I'm looking forward to flying. They also are a, a GoBosch dealer. And uh, I've been flying their GoBosch uh, 700 uh, which is a lot of fun. Uh, so, uh, so I've been getting a little taste of the LSA thing lately. It's uh, it's 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 very cool. It's a, it's a it's a really sexy looking airplane, the Gobosh, and uh, and it flies real nicely too. It's got a lot of get up and go, a lot of pep. 
Uh, that kind of defines the uh, category, I think, uh, for pilots that go flying these airplanes. They'll kind of find a couple things right off the bat that generally surprises them, and this is one of the things the insurance industry is highly focused on. Uh, yeah. Very experienced pilots getting these airplanes sometimes have problems. It's not because these airplanes are hard to fly. They're easy to fly. The, maybe that's the problem. They're easy to fly. You don't have to work at it so hard, and, and if you do work at it too hard, you can overfly the airplane, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, uh, this, this this brings up something that we've seen before. 25 years ago when ultralights were still new and fresh and we had a lot of guys trading down or, you know, buying down in their terms who were coming from flying spam can iron, Cessna Skyhawks and Piper Cherokees and, and, uh, and uh, Beach Musketeers who were going to, to ultralight airplanes. And we found that they had a, a, a much higher uh, accident record than pilots in the same equipment who had never trained in anything else before, had no prior flying experience. In fact, the NTSB did a year-long audit of ultralight accidents and found that the uh, accident rate among experienced pilots moving into ultralights was more than double what it was for novice pilots who were getting their first taste of flying in the ultralights and some of the uh some of the cause that the ntsb attributed to that at the time was a little bit of it was uh maybe not the best transition training that they could have had uh some of it was the markedly different wing loading that is how sensitive the airplane was and how quickly the airplane reacted versus what they were used to but they also attributed a fair amount of it to a, a fundamental lack of respect. Too many guys coming from the bigger iron, the more traditional iron, it kind of came to the newer category with the attitude that uh, I've been flying all this really sophisticated stuff. This is really more like a toy. And it came up and bit them mm. on the tail feathers. Yeah. Now, so this is a this is actually a, an interesting subject because there was a, a story in the news about I don't know a week or two ago, um, where uh, a insurance company Avemco uh, came out and said, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here and correct me if I'm not paraphrasing correctly. They said that the that the the, the so-called poor LSA safety record was due not to the fact that LSA pilots knew LSA pilots were doing badly, but that there were careless private pilot transitions, which is what you were just describing. Uh, what do we think about Avemco's statement here? I, it, I, th- I think it goes to the same kind of attitude that we were seeing 25 years ago, and Dan may be able to better speak to it than I can because he's around this you know, much more full-time than me. But uh, some, of the, uh, some of the guys that I know here locally that are going to light sport aircraft are going to light sport legacy airplanes. They're, they're trading down to Aronka Champs and Taylor Craft, which have some of the same characteristics as the, the factory new light sport aircraft. Lighter wing loading, uh, more maneuverable, uh, lighter response. Uh, and for some of them, that's their first taste of tailwheel training, and that's where some of them have been struggling. Uh, and, and one of them told me a couple of weeks ago uh, at a little 
meeting that uh, he'd been working on his tailwheel rating so that he could fly as a light as a sport pilot in a friend of his uh, Aronka Champ, and then wanted to move up to the uh, Luscombe which is also LSA compatible. And he said, boy, I didn't have near enough respect for how, how light these airplanes are. Uh, he'd getting batted around in rough air to the extent that he wasn't really used to flying the Cessna 210 that he'd been flying for the last 20 years. Yeah. Interesting. So do what's the solution, I guess, is my question I'm trying to get at here. Uh, is it as straightforward as trying to convince transitioning pilots to take it more seriously or have a different mindset? Um, or is there some something that needs to be added to the training syllabus or what? It's, uh, the solution is simple. The execution is what the challenge is. Uh-huh. And the solution is simply, and, and by the way, uh, before I even say what it is, uh, Dave's uh, version there was representative of about, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago. There's a more recent version about uh, 8 or 10 years ago with Cirrus. When the Cirrus first came on the market, it also <laughs> got the same kind of reviews. Oh, the insurance companies were having to upgrade the number the premiums because losses were extraordinary and all that. And uh, that all pretty much settled down. Well, how did that happen? It happened because Cirrus upped the amount of training that they gave everybody. And made sure that they got it and were properly trained in their aircraft, uh, which did fly somewhat differently. The fixed gear made it look like not such a high-performance airplane, but it was one. And uh, people got in trouble with them. And they had some accidents and some losses, unfortunately. And they cleaned it up by doing that. The exact same thing is going to happen in light sport. It's already underway. It's It's one of the main focuses of... um, the llama audit thing that is really our trigger point in the last six months and will be for the next couple of years at least uh, to get around and audit as many companies as we can. And in the audit, it speaks to uh, a flight training supplement and transition training in particular for downgrading pilots so that they can make this process go better. And the insurance industry is basically saying they want five hours per airplane. And mm-hmm. the challenge becomes now the 8,000-hour Bonanza pilot or the airline captain or any number of other highly rated, highly skilled pilots who come to this with exactly the attitude that Dave spoke to and say, gee, these are just little airplanes. I mean, how hard can they be to fly? But they are lively little airplanes. They handle lightly and briskly. Uh, doesn't mean they can't cruise well, but the number of autopilots on these airplanes which is many, speaks to the fact that if you really want to go a long distance, you don't want to have to be wiggling the stick the whole time. But while you're just yeah. flying around the local area, they're great. Yeah, yeah. Now, you yeah, know, I'm, I'm curious about some of the terminology that you're using here. Um, are, do people really refer to this as a downgrade? I, I just think that would be a bad term to use. I, I've never thought of it as anything. I, I am literally the case. I'm a private pilot who is now getting checked out in a, 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 go, a GoBosch LSA. Um, I've never, ever thought of it uh, as anything other than a transition. Um, it's just a new airplane that I'm learning how to fly. And um, I, I never would have considered it a downgrade. Uh, is that a term that the industry is using? I think I don't think down. I don't. I don't think downgrade is the term. I think downsize is the term. Uh huh. Anyways, it, does, is there anybody uh, at the FAA or 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 anyone else who is mandating any particular uh, uh, standards for what's what's you know involved in these transitions? Is there any pr- practical test standards or anything like that? 
Uh, that's not my area of particular expertise on the pilot side of it. I'm mainly focused on the airplane side of it. But the industry standard, I mean, just it's, it's just become practically accepted dogma that five hours in type, you know, time and type kind of thing is required. It is what FAA requires for an instructor who is going to instruct. Any CFI can immediately go fly and instruct for hire in a light sport after getting five hours time and type. Yeah. So there you have one number that the FAA puts out that basically is a guideline for everything. And the challenge becomes to get those highly rated pilots to actually take five hours because these <laughs> things are easy to fly. Yeah. If you get it in the first hour, if you're one of those people that goes, okay, I see what I got to do. This is easy. Uh, and you get it. And and yet the insurance industry and FAA says, well, too bad. You got to get five hours. You got to get four more hours. Mm -hmm. Then the instructor community and uh, you know somebody's got to pay for fuel and uh, whose airplane do we do that in? And it just unleashes a bunch of other duties that go with the territory. But it's what Cirrus did successfully was to institute better training. It reduced their accident ratio. The insurance premiums came back down, and everybody kind of forgot about the fact that they ever had a problem. That's what we hope for in the ultra in the uh, ultralight. I uh, can't get out of my old industry, I guess, in the light sport <laughs> aircraft industry. It's all pretty interesting. Um, let's get back to the Sebring show. Uh, what else happened there? What other news stories? What other cool airplanes did you see? Well, I got to jump in and do one thing before we go back to more cool airplanes, and there were still more. And I'm happy to always talk about those. That's yeah. my passion. But I do want to speak to the llama dinner that occurred. This is the third annual of these things now and like last year it was another pretty good affair uh, drawing more than 300 LSA professionals to it uh, which is I think without argument uh, the largest gathering of LSA professionals anywhere on the planet uh -huh. and uh, so it's a nice opportunity for LAMA to thank its members and to encourage others to join LAMA and uh, we presented a lot of facts and figures on a on a slideshow thing but I had promised in inviting people to this and uh, with the help of our friends over at Aviators Hotline, who sponsored this year's dinner and have signed up to do so again next year, so that we appreciate them, and I need to mention them for that reason. Um, but we gave, uh, we promised, read my lips, you've heard that line before, mm -hmm. no long, boring speeches. <laughs> so we just ran a couple of screens, one of some nice flying scenes and one of a, another uh, a PowerPoint-type show, uh, that just uh, gave facts and figures and, you know, a little pep talk about what the industry was doing. But we did all that on opening night at Sebring, and Bob Wood, the organizer of the event, the, the chairman of the group, I should say, he would uh, chide me for not mentioning his whole volunteer staff. Everyone who runs Sebring is a volunteer, by the way. No paid salaries whatsoever. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And anyway, so he got up and announced, he said, this Thursday was the best Thursday. And they, and they do a great have. job, too. In five years of Sebring, this was the best Thursday ever. Mm -hmm. Well, that was pretty cool. It was a big lift for everybody. We had a nice turnout. We had a nice time. Uh, we didn't have the race cars quite so loud this time. That was a nice break from last year when it was uh, an assault on your hearing <laughs> during the entire event, it seemed. Um, so it was a great thing, and we were really glad to be there, and we really appreciate everybody turning out. And I think everyone learned something and came, went away with it with positive feelings. And, and indeed, that led then, not, not that that was a catalyst for everything, but it got everybody kind of on track to uh, 
get ready for a good Sebring. And then he announced, Bob announced at a different venue the next day that that Friday had been the best day ever for Sebring of any day. So we knew we were on to something hot by Friday evening. Saturday was another great day. Sunday started to slow down a little bit, but still had a nice turnout. We had great weather. And uh, I don't know how many flights there were. That's one th- one fact I can't give you, but there were a lot of demo flights given. And I would think that number might be five, six, seven hundred flights given in four days. Wow. wow. There was a lot of flying going on there. So it was it was pretty exciting to be part of that. Very cool. Very cool. So uh, other cool airplanes? Other cool airplanes. Uh, the Hansen Air Group showed their finished version of the FP-04 from Fleming Air. And while that sounds like it might be Norwegian or something, I find it interesting because it is our first entry of an aircraft manufa- designed and manufactured in what we used to know as East Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, it's not East Germany anymore. It's all just Germany now. But, uh, you know, that part of uh, Germany was kind of lost to a whole generation of Americans like me that didn't know anything about really what was going on there. Well, they have, they make airplanes. And indeed, the uh, Hanson Air Group out of Atlanta, Georgia, which also makes the Sky Arrow, which has that other uh, hand control unit for disabled pilots, um, uh, they represented that airplane there. The Urban um, Urban Air USA group that has the lovely Lombada motor glider uh, revealed their new Samba, uh, very nice uh, all composite uh, low wing. Evector had their new uh, SL model, uh, which it, it, it visually looks like the exact same airplane until you notice it's just kind of smoother all over. And indeed, that's kind of that's what they did. It's actually a quite a, a, a significant redesign, I believe. But it doesn't look so much, and, and, and that is exactly what they did, was make it not look so much, uh, which is kind of a cool thing. These airplanes are probably in their, entering their third generation now of evolution in a four-year time slot. Um, and we are now up to 92 models certified. We're coming on the 100 number. Yeah. This is in less than four years, I remind you. Um, so a lot of diversity, and it continues to show. We saw for the first time an airplane coming directly out of the Ukraine. Uh, it's not certified yet, and there's no program behind it yet, but a nice-looking airplane called the Skyton uh, from an all-Ukraine group, as I said. Uh, that was kind of fun to see. Uh, they were, wow, boy, I'm losing track here without without a page of notes uh, uh, to keep track of it. But uh, we, we did see more new airplanes there than than I expected we would see when we went into Sebring, when everyone was going, gosh, I hope there's not a whole bunch of exhibitors talking to one another. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that it's doing well. Uh, so, much, so much of general aviation is, is having a hard time right now. It's great to hear about a segment that's that's at least holding its own and, uh, and, and, and sounds like doing better than that. So uh, terrific. Terrific. Yeah, a couple others I do want to mention that uh, just popped into my mind uh, is the uh, the Rands company uh, brought out their third new uh, design, uh, uh, third new approval, I should say, the Coyote, which has more than, I believe, about 2,000 flying in the United States already, but all built as kits. That's now available as a ready-to-fly airplane. Um, so that makes number three for them, and it's exciting to see more American companies getting involved with uh, special light sport aircraft. The Europeans have dominated this, still do, two-thirds of them, 
but that's changing. Uh, American company uh, out of Shelbyville, Tennessee, uh, that makes the Jabiru airplanes for special light sport aircraft. They bring in Jabiru kits. They put them together with Jabiru engines and sell them as ready-to-fly airplanes under their own uh, through their own company. But now they've got their own brand, too, under another company name, and it's the uh, Lightning, which is just a gorgeous low wing. I mean, this thing looks like a sort of a mini Lance Air, if you will. Um, and uh, and has I flew that airplane and it had the widest speed range I've ever experienced. Now this was not this was in a kit built model that could go faster, but uh, I saw a stall at forty miles an hour and was able to hit almost two hundred indicated. That's a that's a five wow. times ratio. That's that's you know sort of off the charts. And and the airplane is just lovely to look at. An all American design. It will have an Australian power plant, the Jabiru power plant, but. Uh, kind of cool to see those uh, uh, American designs come more to the forefront, and there are more in the works. There's a really interesting one right here on uh, Spruce Creek called the uh, uh, the My Sky is the name of the company, and One is their airplane. I guess it's their first airplane, so a One. So we're going to see more and more out of this segment, and uh, as I said, the ride could be fun, and maybe we'll help lead General Aviation out of its financial funk. Very cool, very cool. Hey, uh, Dave and Jeb, you've been a little quiet this evening. you have any questions for Dan or uh, b- about this stuff? No, he's been doing fine. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm gratified uh, that, that all the news coming out of, of, uh, of Sebring is so good. Um, Dan, let me ask you this. If, if you had your choice, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I know you have some professional responsibilities here. But if you had your choice... Um, of which of these uh, uh, aircraft you would want to own or you would want to fly, say, 99% of the time, which would it be? <laughs> Don't put them on the spot, though. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. That was a big All right. Uh, yeah, unfair but, question. Hey, did, did you mention the breeze, too? I did not, but that is one that slipped by the radar and it would be one of the fun airplanes. You know, the question is impossible because it depends on what you want to do in an airplane. And so the one Dave's talking about, the Breeze 2 from our friend Paul Mather in uh, Alabama, uh, won its approval actually last summer. And somehow the media just didn't pay attention or something. And shame on all of us who didn't notice that these guys did it because they've got an airplane you can buy ready to fly for 34995 uh, that's pretty cheap in yeah. today's market. That's not even an SUV cost for the most and part. And that's that's the third or fourth LSA that I know of that comes in no more than forty thousand dollars. That's right. And new, ready to fly. Ready to fly. Yep. Uh, now, admittedly, at those prices, they're with a two-stroke engine, and if that if that doesn't work for uh, some buyers, and well, then they got to go with a four-stroke. And, and that'll add another ten thousand dollars just because it's a four-stroke engine. Uh, but even so, in the sixty and seventy range, there are still several choices. Um, and I, 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 here's how I can answer the question. I mean, as my representation, the one you, the one you just pinned me down with, there, Jeb. Um, uh, one of my favorite of all airplanes to fly, and if I could own one, this is probably what I would own. If I could afford it by myself, I probably would. I probably can't, so we'll have to see what works. But if I could, I'd probably have to go for an air cam, and it's not even a light sport aircraft. Nope. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, well, boy, I couldn't quibble with that because uh, 
Dave's uh, been singing the praises of the air cam for two and a half years here on the podcast. Well, that's, 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 that's a, that's a twin engine awesome airplane that work. does things like no other twin ever made. Yeah. There's no airplane that flies quite like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, before we move off uh, the subject of light sport, uh, anything else we should know about that we didn't ask you? Can you give us a sneak preview of something that's going to happen in the next six months in light sport that we haven't heard about? Yeah, I think one of the trends that I've begun to notice, and this is from a variety of, of input to me, so I'm not, I'm not even going out and asking the question, um, but I'm getting input from all over about the development of interest, even now, even in these doldrums, in light sport aircraft in the flight school market. And now we're talking basically, I mean, the number of de- LSA dedicated flight schools are still small. I don't know. I don't know what the number is, but you know, one or 200 at the most that do flight training only in light sport aircraft. Most flight schools are using GA aircraft, but an increasing number of those, uh, like 10 or 15 tickles, just I've heard about different places, things going on in different parts of the country just since Sebring um, suggests that there is a growing interest in the flight school market to use light sport aircraft for primary trainers. And that, again, gets back to that thing I talked about up front where it's fulfilling what everyone perceived was the destiny of these things to be the entry point. And if that's where students first fly in airplanes, and if they come away from that experience feeling positively about aviation, then maybe we've got opportunities for growth that we haven't seen before. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, let's see now. Well, we're kind of, believe it or not, reaching the end of our allotted time here. Um, Shout-outs. Anybody got any shout-outs here? Uh, First off, a tip of the hat to a pioneer that we lost this week. Uh, without this gentleman, we would not have GPS as we know it today. We would not be able to fly point-to-point. Point. There would be no Garmin 496 or 696 or uh, Lawrence Air Map uh, or uh, Honeywell Aviator. Sherman Gowdy Francisco, who was a uh, chief engineer for the GPS control segment when he was at IBM Federal Systems, then later Laurel and Lockheed Martin, and this gentleman was personally credited with solving many of the clock, orbit, filter, and atmospheric problems that had to be corrected before the first GPS satellite ever went into orbit. He won the Collier Trophy from the National Aeronautic Association in 92. Uh, he uh, died on January 7th. He was 75. Uh, next time you punch up direct or you know, fire up your little GPS uh, handheld or panel mounted or the one that you use to navigate your rental car, you should pause a moment and, and, and thank Mr. Francisco for the work that he did. Uh, we wouldn't have it today. And the other one... Well, before we move quick, on, Dave, I, yeah. I just wanted to add one bit to that. I, I didn't know uh, of this gentleman prior to reading about his passing, um, but I do know from a technology standpoint um, that, that the things he accomplished are, are certainly miraculous. I mean, and I, I think, you know, you, you sort of alluded to this, and I just want to add to it that... Uh, oh, he, these he, are massive, he, massive uh, problems. Yeah, people don't realize. They look at GPS and they think, this is cool technology, but it's really just a radio that does a triangulation. It's really not that simple. 
um, the the technology, uh, the the computer science involved inside a GPS. Um, uh, for, for give me give you one example, the 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 radio signal that a GPS receiver gets from the satellite, the signal is so faint that it's almost impossible to pick it out from the background noise. And one of the huge advances that they came up with in GPS technology was the ability to pick out this little radio signal through all this background noise. And they wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise because they would have otherwise would have had to make these things much much bigger, more powerful, use more electricity and whatnot. So it was important to be able to accomplish that. Um, those kinds of things um, were, were tremendous uh, accomplishments. And so yeah, although think, I... Yeah, think I, about the difference between the old-style satellite TV stations that people had in their backyards with a dish that was about three meters across and the little bitty dish that you can have from a satellite company today. And that's the difference between the GPS that he helped us have today and what we would have had if they weren't able to solve these problems. Yeah. So I'll definitely raise a glass to this gentleman and, and send my condolences out to his family. What was the other one you were going to say, David? Oh, the, uh, yeah. where, did, where did I put it? The, uh, Stick and Rudder Flying Club in uh, in Illinois. Uh, they won the uh, st- uh, I'm sorry, they won the Spirit of Flight Award for 2009 from the Illinois Aviation Hall of Fame. Uh, this is a flying club that supports uh, oh I forget seven or eight different airplanes, uh, dozens of members. It's been around since 1948. Uh, if you want to see a model of a flying club that uh, uh, not only makes it happen for its members, but makes it happen in a way that contributes to the whole co- aviation community, uh, the link will be on, on the show notes. But uh, hats off, a tip of the wing to the Stick and Rudder Flying Club uh, in Illinois. Congratulations from us. Yeah. Uh, Jeb, you got anything? Um, yeah, just one more real quick. Whoever runs the... Um uh, Wachula, Florida, uh, airports, uh, fuel sales, uh, gets my tip of the, uh, tip of the wing. Um, I don't know how they do it, but they consistently have the cheapest avgas in the area. Um, over the weekend I've topped off for $2 and 85 cents a gallon. Wow. Yeah. That's bloody amazing. Yeah, 285. Yeah. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, 285 a gallon. Uh, just amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. Uh, DJ, any uh, little quick uh, shout-outs you want to send out to anybody in the world? Uh, well, yes, actually. And, and this, unfortunately, brings in a bit of a sad note. At the end of Sebring, we suffered a loss. There was uh, a crash, and two right. people were uh, killed. And, uh, excuse me, one person was killed, and the pilot was uh, taken to the hospital. Excuse me for misstating that. But the man that was lost uh, was a gentleman named Steve Fletcher who uh, did aviation photography and whose work primarily appeared in uh, Today's Pilot, a British publication, but some really fine photography, as good as anybody I've seen in the business, in yeah. a young guy who left a wife and two children in England. Yeah. I've met, I'd met Steve uh, on, on the circuit, and uh, he, he had a real enthusiasm for, for the for the community and for the work he did and it showed up in his photography and uh you know our our heart goes out to his family and and his and his friends yeah Yeah, there is a fund uh, if anybody cared to contribute to that kind of thing there is a fund out there and uh, we could make it available through your website i'm sure so that's great yeah we'll, we'll do that absolutely 
Anyway, so a tip of the wing to Steve and his good buddy, uh, Dave Unwin, who was in the uh, aircraft 2B photographed right behind him, who witnessed all of this, unfortunately. Oh, or maybe that's a good thing. At least he can help identify why. But um, uh, anyway, those two worked together and did hundreds of photo missions. And so, uh, as you say, a tip of the wing to Steve Fletcher. Yeah. And uh, I have one here. Let me maybe try and wrap this up on a little bit more of a positive note. Um, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and I want to remind everyone that on February Saturday, February 14th, if you're up here in the in the southern Maine area, uh, the uh, Sanford Regional Airport uh, will be hosting its annual ski ski plane fly-in. Uh, like I said, Saturday, February 14th, uh, it's uh, it's a day-long event. Uh, there, uh, In addition to the fly-in, there's going to be a breakfast in the morning uh, starting around 7.30. Um, there's actually a, at least one seminar later in the morning where they're going to be talking about the new ELTs, uh, which we've talked a little bit about in the podcast. And, of course, hopefully there'll be a, a lot of airplanes coming and going, both on skis and on wheels. Uh, that's uh, Saturday, February 14th at Sanford Maine Regional Airport. Uh, their website is uh, southernmaineaviation.com. So, anyways, well, we're going to have to stick a fork in this one. Um, Looks like a lot of fun, Jack. Yeah, Looks I'm looking like forward to it. It's going to be, it's going to make up a little, in a small way, it'll make up for me not being able to get up to the, to the EAA ski plane fly-in. Uh, we want to thank Dan Johnson for uh, visiting us here in the hangar. It's always a blast. Dan is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, an aviation journalist who focuses on the light sport aviation or aircraft field. Also the chairman, uh, and apparently something else now, but uh, the chairman of the, the Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association. You have a new role there now? What's that all about? Yeah, I uh, took on the role of president after our previous president, Tom Gunnarsson, uh, resigned to go work for FAA in their light sport office, uh, which which is good. It gives us a friend in the belly of the beast, and uh, that's always a good thing to have, uh, but it left us uh, without that leader, and uh, after searching for a little while, I decided that uh, it was something I could take on, and uh, so I've been uh, doing a lot of volunteer work uh, in the last six months of the year, but I think we're doing some good things to help show other people that these airplanes really are well certified. You all seem to be doing something right. Tell us where uh, you, uh, both the organization and you yourself, can be found on the uh, Internet. On the web, uh, the Light Aircraft Manufacturers Association, a very short address. It's lama.bz, Bravo Zulu. Not B-I-Z, just Bravo Zulu, mm-hmm. lma.bz. And uh, my own website is by Dan Johnson, just like a uh, article byline in a magazine, bydanjohnson.com. And on that site, uh, one of the new things that we've got, I'll pitch, uh, that is always of interest to people, it seems, uh, is a whole section dedicated to the market. And you can see our regular updates of market share and so forth. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. Thank you very much. Jeb Burnside, if he's still out there, uh, is an aviation journalist. <laughs> he's uh, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, you there? Yeah, I'm still here. No, I, I, I my connection is not really good tonight, so I'm really kind of reluctant to jump. Tell us, tell us where people can uh, find you on the Internet. Uh, well, when, when their Internet is working uh, better than mine is tonight, <laughs> uh, they can find me at uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, which is my day job. Uh, one of these days, and I'll probably try to do it over the weekend, I will get my personal website back up and running, and it's jeburnside.com. And every now and then I pop up uh, on AvWeb, uh, uh, either in text or uh, in uh, audio or video. Um, and, of course, that URL is avweb, 
dot com. Uh, and Jack, I know, I, I know you're probably still in denial about uh, <laughs> yeah uh, the, the videos that we've been doing at Have Web and, and a couple of them uh, I've I've worked on. I would just ask you to wait until you can see the blooper reel. Oh, I want to <laughs> want to see that absolutely. Blooper reel uh, is 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 not too shabby, and it'll be up in a week or so. Oh, great! That's great. Hey, and finally, uh, Dave Higdon is here. Uh, Dave is an aviation photographer, uh, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, tell us where people can find you on the web. Oh, avbuyer.com or aea.net. Uh, my friends where I uh, do a little work for Avionics News Magazine or that magazine that uh, Mr. Burnside works for. That's right. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can find me at uh, jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. As always, a huge thanks goes out to Jeff Scoffridge at Ward for creating our show notes and to our many listeners, and particularly to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl for the show opening disclaimer clips that they have created. And don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog. You can view the forums. Check out the wiki the airport restaurants list, the aviation answers section, the aviation movies list, and more. And that's all at uncontrolledairspace.com. So, David, what were you going to say? I was going to say live longer, live well. Keep flying because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. That's right. Well, that's enough talking for tonight. Let's go flying. TTFN. <laughs>